0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Storytellers podcast. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking to an internationally renowned Australian economist by the name of Steve Keane, who also recently ran for Senate in the past Australian election. In this conversation, Steve and I touch on the topic of climate change, focusing in particular on the aspect of economics. We take a look at the current state of climate economics and explore how the findings in this field are particularly misleading and promoting misleading data and misleading policies to be enacted upon. We explore Steve's criticisms of this work that he's been writing out for the past few years. And we take a look at what he thinks to be the truth of the matter. We also touch on certain aspects of environmentalism and perhaps where the left in particular is going wrong in their battle for environmentalism. Part of that then comes the discussion of nuclear energy and the nuclear debate and we explore just how that may in fact pose quite a viable solution to the world's energy problems. As you will see in the conversation, Steve is quite an erudite person, both highly educated and highly articulate, and was an absolute pleasure to talk to, and I hope will also be an absolute pleasure to listen to. So, without further ado, I give you Steve Keen so today i have the pleasure of talking to steve King. steve is an internationally distinguished post keynesian economist known for his critiques of neoclassical economics he publicly warned against the advent of the global financial crisis three years before its occurrence and he is also the author of the new economics and manifesto as well as other works. More recently, he has been making headlines for his unforgiving criticism of the works of modern climate economists. So, Steve, thanks for joining me this evening. Delighted to talk, Lucy, and this is, the word has to get out on this, so the more feel I can talk to and get the word out, the better. Oh, exactly. I saw, I actually came across, I think, your first article in the conversation last year or two years ago, and this was before I'd even started doing something like a podcast but I had plans for it and so I noted you down quite a while ago now as a potential guest for when we got here so it's great to finally be here. So was there anything that you wanted to add there um, and into that little intro and maybe you could just briefly explain to some of the less economically inclined individuals what post-Keynesian means, what neoclassical means and then maybe elaborate on why you're the person to be talking about this okay um
1: well the, the economic theory is my analogy for economic theory really is, is astronomy at the time that we discovered there are craters on the moon and uh, you have a previous uh, sect of economics called neoclassical economics which has been going since 1870 and that if you sort of supply and demand and that's the mainstream and it's superficially appealing, it's superficially convincing and it superficially makes sense. But when you dive into the deep logic of it, mathematically in particular, uh, you find there are mathematical and empirical flaws that make it completely invalid. Um, but that that is the dominant uh, approach to economics and I've been trying to dislodge that for 50 years, obviously unsuccessfully, um, along with a whole bunch of other people who are also critics. Uh, and that's the... the there are th- in terms of... Schools of economic thought, neoclassical, there's what you just call economics, what you grab out of a first year textbook, mm-hmm. and right through to getting a PhD. And somebody like Paul Krugman is a neoclassical economist, so is Milton Friedman. Um, so, uh, you know, familiar names, and so is William Nordhaus, is the one we're talking about in climate change. Mm-hmm. That's the mainstream. Then there are protest groups. At the, 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 the far left, you have some Marxian economists, they're very few. At the far right, you have what are called Austrian economists, and they are uh, libertarian fundamentally and the the post keynesian school sits in the middle in the sense that it's trying to be fundamentally pragmatic and saying that you simply have to describe the economy properly before you can talk about managing it and that's led to a very heavily heavy empirical focus on, on that particular school of thought, even though it's also mainly from people who are politically on the left. But for example, if you know the Gore-Tex family, uh, which you know is, is the, the large bastions of the American right, um, but their economic advisor is a post-Keynesian and I've spoken to the Gore, fa- Gore-Tex, the Gore family uh, about economics. So it is not necessarily left or right. It's basically correct. That's why I try to describe okay. it. And um, so I've, I've been trying to develop methods for that, and really I'm borrowing a lot of techniques from engineering. So if people have any engineering background, they would, I think, enjoy my Minsky software, named after Hyman Minsky, which is an open source a system dynamics modelling programme that I've designed. I haven't written the code, but I designed the software uh, for analysing monetary non-equilibrium uh, dynamics, but it's, but it's also we can handle anything you can model weather with it. Um, but it's, uh, it's fundamentally there to help economists model using double entry bookkeeping, which brings money into the picture. So um, that's, that's a bit too long-winded, I suppose. But the basic story is there's a, uh, I'm basically trying to bring realism into economics. And that is a huge struggle because people, when they swallow the supply and demand blue pill, uh, are lost to reality in the same way that Neo was in the matrix.
0: Right. Okay. Awesome. That's quite, I think you've elaborated on that quite well there. Would you say that this post-Keynesian lens of yours is what has brought you to your analysis of, as we're about to get into, of climate economics? It's proved... No,
1: I would I'd simply say that I've got a good bullshit detector and I can smell bullshit from a mile away and this is not the left nor right. This is simply bullshit. The stuff that neoclassical economists have done takes no knowledge of economics to know that it's nonsense. All you have to know is understand have some basic understanding of what climate and weather are, that they're different, and that they're mistaking the weather for climate, and the the scale of uh, of damage to the environment they're talking about uh, is trivial compared to what'll actually happen because they're talking as if you're shifting Sydney to Melbourne, uh, you know, and if we're going to change Sydney's GDP because Melbourne's in a slightly better location for for for, for generating uh, uh, food output. And therefore, that's the only part of uh, climate that's going to be affected. So you're going to increase the GDP by shifting Sydney to Melbourne. Uh, and in that, that'll be in, actually the other way around, say Melbourne to Sydney. So you, get a, you know, get a five or 10 degree increase in average temperature, and that'll improve GDP. Uh, It is completely ignorant. And and the only way you can understand how this became accepted and dominant in economics, which is completely different to what scientists are doing, is that one person came up with it, got it through the referee process. This is William Nordhaus. Because refereeing in economics is extremely bad, uh, you've got people who are just as unrealistic as the author refereeing the paper and they accept what they they call unrealistic assumption. This is really the fall down. So he made an unrealistic assumption that a roof will protect you from climate change. Now, that might sound ridiculous. eh? He didn't actually write it away. What he actually wrote was most economic activity takes place in, quote, unquote, carefully controlled environments that will be largely unaffected by climate change. Now, if he was talking, uh, you know, Nuclear bunkers and stuff like that, fair enough. But he listed 87% of American industry, all of manufacturing, all of retail and, hotels, uh, retail and wholesale services, mining, even. He didn't seem to understand there's some mining It was underground, open cut as well as underground. Um, finance, insurance, and real estate, except that on the coast. Uh, and, and transport except by sea. Okay, So he therefore said 87% will be unaffected, only 13% will be affected, and only 3% will be significantly affected. Now, once he got that published, um, it's in the literature. And then he he gets PhD students working with him and so on, and a little group builds up that starts reproducing this stuff. And most economists, frankly, couldn't give a shit about climate change. They They, they don't take it seriously in general. So this little specialist group referee each other's papers, publish each other's stuff, and actually compete with each other in many ways to produce lower estimates of the damage from climate change. And it really is like a little, not just a case of the wrong religion. You've got a little clique within the religion that is driving this madness. And it, 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 as I said, it doesn't take any economic analysis. It just takes common sense to know this is nonsense.
0: Okay, awesome. Well, all right, let's, let's take a step back here and lay the groundwork or investigate what it is that pretty much you've just said and step it out a little bit more, Um, the fundamental work behind what we've just been talking about there. And so to kick that off, I'm going to read an abstract of a paper from yours which encapsulates things nicely. So, forecasts by economists of the economic damage from climate change have been notably sanguine compared to warnings by scientists about damage to the biosphere. This is because economists made their own predictions of damages using three spurious methods, assuming that 90% of GDP will be unaffected by climate change because it happens indoors, using the relationship between temperature and GDP GDP today as a proxy for the impact of global warming over time, and using surveys that diluted extreme warnings from scientists with optimistic expectations from economists. Nordhaus has misrepresented the scientific literature to justify the using of a smooth function to describe the damage to GDP from climate change. Correcting for these errors makes it feasible that the economic damages from climate change are at least an order of magnitude worse than forecasts by economists, and may be so great as to threaten the survival of human civilization and so you sort of summarized maybe perhaps the top end there um the the top part of that story um so maybe we can go back and dig into the the core of that and the work behind those claims and what you've just made um statements you've just made so maybe you could this is your story so maybe you could elaborate on that as you as you see fit
1: okay uh, well the economists when they when when climate change was first mooted in effect it was largely by, uh, in terms terms of the systemic implications for human society, by the Limits to Growth Study, which is literally 50 years old this year, 1972. And when it came out, it was making predictions of effectively social breakdown uh, with a a whole range of different factors, collapsing food output, rising uh, health problems, uh, increasing pollution, et cetera, et cetera peaking sometime between 2030 and 2050 when you take a look at the the curves they drew and this was all this was work actually done by engineers at massachusetts institute of technology people people who'd look back think the green was a bunch of greenies you know hippies somewhere writing this thing up. it was largely for engineers at mit all being trained by a guy called jay forrester who developed the software that did this modeling and they had done some very very careful empirical work backtracking the, the, um, their, their model to 1900 and ran the model forward to 1970, making sure the model fitted the index numbers they generated out of the data, and then ran it forward from 1970 to, to, to 2100. And they then showed the pattern from 1900 to 2100 uh, on, their, uh, on their, their charts in the book. And William Nordhaus uh, led the charge by economists against this, and he he literally claimed there was not one empirical fact in the entire book, that they, they had no respect for empirical data. Now, in fact, this is a mistake of the limits to growth. They didn't publish their empirical works until 1975. They made the mistake of putting the report out first, but it was totally wrong to say that. And then what you would expect is that he would be very careful about the empirical data. But he, what you got instead was, and this is so typical of economists, um, he simply assumed that um, the problem couldn't be too big, couldn't be existential. And he then simply said, we can add up, we can, we can work out the effect by adding up current data or by extrapolating current data. See the adding up approaches where they said we can say this industry will be affected by climate change, this industry won't. And they start immediately by assuming that manufacturing won't be affected. And in, in the same article, this is in 1991 now, and we wrote the economics of climate change, a paper in the Economic Journal. He literally said it's very hard to see direct impacts from climate change on most of the economy, manufacturing services, et cetera, et cetera, in the next 50 to 75 years. Now, an obvious direct effect is the role of energy. If we finally realise that pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere is destroying the survivability of the biosphere for a human society, then we're going to cut our energy. And at the moment, 85% of our energy comes from fossil fuels. Now, if we did have to, let's say tomorrow, for example, and this is literally the sort of example I, I like making all the time, we've had storms that have you know, wiped out, that hit Brisbane really badly, which is why Brisbane voted for three Green Councillors in this election. Uh, we've had storms that have wiped out a village in Germany. We've had storms that have taken Vancouver's roads off the map. So Vancouver was isolated by, first of all, fire and then storms. That's uh, when uh, a, a tiny town in Vancouver hit, hit virtually the highest one of the highest temperatures ever recorded last summer and then burnt down the day after and then was flooded. Um, so this sort of apocalyptic stuff. But that's only a town. Imagine that a whole country gets wiped out by a storm. Okay. I'm, I'm saying imagine because it had, we've never seen anything like it, but that's what you need to be able to do, realise is nothing like anything we've ever received before. When that happens, if that happens, when that happens, People will say, holy shit, we've got to stop carbon now. So if we did that, they'd have an 85% fall in energy availability. Now, a lot of some of that energy is used to ship energy around. So if you stop shipping energy and you just get it from solar, then you don't have the same transmission costs and so on. But you'd be looking at something like an 80% fall in energy availability, and that would cause an 80% fall in output or worse. Okay. That's a direct effect. So he simply has a lack of imagination, and this lack of imagination comes out of economic theory, which uh, when you look at how economists model production, most of them these days use what's called a Cobb-Douglas production function. Uh, and that simply says output is technology times labour times capital. And they raise labour and capital to powers, exponents, you know, you know y, x, y equals x squared type stuff. But the exponents sum to one and the idea there is you double inputs, you double output, which is a reasonable assumption. Uh, but they have no role for energy in there. And when they do include energy, they whack on, uh, labor times capital times energy, and the exponents are chosen using the share of GDP that each of those components gets. So labor gets about sixty to seventy percent, uh, profit gets thirty to thirty to forty percent, and when you divide out the part of profit that comes for, for, for energy producing companies, they get about four four percent of GDP. So their argument would be, and this is literally I'm quoting a, a paper now from a bunch of economists published in March of this year, their, their simplest theory says that a 10% fall in energy inputs would cause a 0.4% fall in GDP because energy only contributes 4%, okay? So 4% of 10% is 0.4%, okay? And therefore, they say that no big deal, 10% fall in energy, only it lose less than half a percent of GDP, now, when you look at the real data, there's a one for one relationship between energy and GDP. And this is over the empirical data from 1970 to 2018. For people know their mathematics, the correlation coefficient between change in GDP at the global level and change in energy at the global level is 0.83, which is ludicrously high. Okay, And, and the relationship is one for one. Uh, it, it's, the, 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 you, the biggest scale difference you can get, depending on how you, whether you put a slow intercept or not on a straight line plot, it's either 1.3 or 1.35. It's very, very close to one-to-one 1 relationship between the two. So if you have a fallen energy, you're going to have a fallen output. Now, why didn't you see it? Because his theory blinds him to it by presuming you can produce output without energy. So this is typical. It's just simply intellectual blindness. And then that is what's led all of their arguments. So that's the beginning point. So they think first of all, 87% of industry are going to be unaffected largely because it doesn't happen outdoors. So I think only and that's what they said carefully controlled environments. And then they say all of manufacturing, all of services, all of finance, what do they have in common? A roof. That's all those industries have in common. Okay. Um, so that's that's the sort of thing they do. Then another thing they've done is they said well let's use geographic data on temperature and GDP working initially with the United States for their data set. And we can see what the relationship is between temperature and GDP. Now, if you just simply take those two indicators and you take continental United States, then you're going to find variations in income and variations in temperature. And when you plot it, you get big old scatter. I've done this just using very available data. Um, temperature difference from the average for the United States on the horizontal axis GDP difference on the vertical, you get a whole scatter of points, and you can sort of see there's a bit of a relationship. And you you plot a you can plot a y equals x squared, or literally a quadratic to it, and you'll find that there's a point zero. The slope of the quadratic is g uh, income, which is y in the terminology, equals 0.00311 multiplied by the difference in temperature squared. So the difference in GDP per state is the difference in temperature per state multiplied by 0, 0, 0.0031, which is a trivially small number. Okay. And what it implies is you can have a 10 degree change in temperature and only have a, a 20% change in GDP, roughly. Okay. Now that's actually more extreme. That's a little plot that I did. That's more extreme than what Nordhaus uses. He equals the, ch- the change in GDP equals 0.0027. Multiplied by the temperature change squared. So if you have one, uh, you, you need a, a two degree change in in uh, temperature, which gives you four, you know, two, two squared is four, multiplied by 0.00227, you get up to 0.01, which is 1%. <clears throat> so you're saying, you know, two degree increase in temperature, oh, 1% fall in GDP. And then finally, get up to about, um, 8%, at 6 degrees, you're going to get 8% as your prediction. And that's literally that simplistic. Now, when you look on, the, and then if you look, if you want to compare you know, um, New York to Florida, then you could say, well, New York's, about, you know, it's 20% richer and it's 10 degrees colder. So if we increase the temperature of New York to Florida's temperature, that implies that you'll get a 20% fall in GDP.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you nothing in, much to worry. In one of in one of your recent articles, you pointed out uh, late last year after COP twenty uh, six, you pointed out that three new papers had been published, pretty much stating that um, climate change were to continue unmitigated to uh, twenty one hundred, it we'd see only a 4% to 7% three, three, four to seven percent decrease. Four hundred eight which they gave two decimal points of accuracy, by the way,
1: 3.67% fall for a four degree increase in temperature. They can't even give you one decimal place of accuracy in modern data, you know, they barely get, you know, we get GDPs risen by 3.2% this year. Uh, the error bars and that are huge. And here are these idiots thinking they could predict to two decimal places what GDP will be in 2100 compared to a planet in which global warming didn't occur. Um, and the, the IPCC report, which, I mean, the IPCC report in general is scientists giving you know, very well worked out warnings about what's going to happen. But the economics chapters, chapter 16 of Working Group 2, on page 65, comes out and says that a 4-degree increase in temperature by 2100, according to the economic studies they looked at, will cause between a 10 and 23% fall in GDP by 2100, compared to what it would be in the absence of climate change. And what that means is, of course, it'd be five times higher than now per capita on the growth rate they're expecting for the next 80 years. Uh, But they're saying it'll only be 10 to 23% fall. So rather than being five times as high per capita, at the worst, it'll be four times higher per capita. And that, therefore, means why worry about it? It doesn't matter. Now, the reality is the temperature they're talking about, and certainly the the, the 10 degree stuff I was giving an example beforehand, that would eliminate um, multicellular life on this planet. Okay, if, if you put a temperature up by 10 degrees, there is no, on average, global temperature. Um, uh, and that would cause all sorts of chaos in the weather itself. I mean, for a start, the obvious one, this is not obvious to most people, but it's obvious when you know a bit about climate. We currently have three what are called circulation cells uh, between in, the, in each, each hemisphere. So you have temperature, you have rising air at the equator and it falls at 30 degrees. And then the other cell, you've got falling air at 30, which rises at 60 and then you have rising air at which, 60, which falls at 90. It's like if you imagine putting soup on a, on, a, on a stove and you get those little uh, cells that form, which are actually called the anvil cells. Uh, and then you turn the temperature up. What happens if those three break down? And then what you have is simply rising air at the equator and falling air at the, at the pole, 0 to 90. That probably would mean rainfall at 0 to 20 and rainfall at 70 to 90, much, not much in between except when it became a catastrophic storm. So the area where most humans are 20 to 70 degrees would become uninhabitable, the desert most of the time, except when there were catastrophic storms. Uh, the temperature in the Arctic would, would be not just increased by t- uh, 10 degrees, it increased by 30 or 40 degrees. The average temperature when this has happened in the past, when there's been only one circulation cell, the average temperature, the last time it happened, to called the Eemian period in the Arctic, was 23 degrees Celsius. Okay. Okay. A bit higher. The reason being, because this one circulation cell, the heat that gets generated at the equator is falling at the pole. Okay. Okay. That's right. So what you therefore get is is a totally different climate, and for part that would mean parts of the planet, and certainly the equatorial and sub-equatorial belt, probably right up to about sixty degrees, fifty degrees, certainly forty degrees north, probably fifty, would have temperatures which humans can't survive. And why that? I mean, there's uh, we 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 people don't realize we're one of the two animals that sweat. The other ones are horses. Okay, so sweating cools us down. Other animals can't sweat. They've got to, you know that's why the t- dogs hang their tongue out. That's how they get the heat out of their system. If you put the external temperature up that high, even we can't d- generate enough evaporation to cool us down. So at a temperature where the, if you had 35 degrees Celsius and 100% humidity. At that temperature, you've got about six hours before your whole body breaks down because you can't transmit heat. You will die of heat exhaustion, and that's—I don't if, if you're Arnie Schwarzenegger, the young Arnie Schwarzenegger, naked uh, and in the shade, you will die of heat exhaustion. Okay, there's no way you can remedy yourself from it. So the, the temperatures they're talking about are simply insane on a climate front, and yet they—they they are impervious to criticism. They simply cannot understand why anybody thinks they're a bunch of bucking morons. They're
0: which so is what blast, I think they eh? are. It's it's this thrown out so casually, oh. aren't they? Like you in one of your paper uh articles, you quote uh, economist Dr. Richard May saying good to the possibility of No, reasoning. no, no, Richard Toll. Richard That's right. Richard May is an intelligent man. Richard Toll Oh, I thought his name was Richard May in there.
1: Okay. No, no, no. Richard May is actually an Australian who was
0: uh, a, a great leader in,
1: in complex science, complex system science and became, I think, he was the advisor to the Queen for a while on science. He knows what he's talking about. Okay. The person you're talking about is Richard Toll, T-O-L. My,
0: my apology. So Richard Toll yeah. talking about the possibility of a weakening Gulf Stream, which is a major regulating um, ocean mechanism. And that being a good thing because it just, it might, uh, I think decrease temperature in Europe was that, or increase temperature in Europe? Decrease, um, and and that's that, you know. And it's which obviously just a, such a ridiculously simple-minded opinion, exactly. And exactly. yet that's it all. that's positive. So what? This was this is a question that I wanted to ask later, but I'll ask it now. You know why do these esteemed economists? these you know people who should who are smart i'm sure have some Mm, some brains on you know they they've got brains on them Uh, they seem to miss or dismiss the example the patently obvious points that on their surface that um that you make um is it like purely incentive or are they why are they just why are they perceiving these ideas through such a purely rigid economic frame
1: yeah, it's not incentives. This is why most people who criticize them get wrong. They think they're saying it's because they're paid to say it, you know, by fossil fuel companies. No, they actually believe this stuff, which is actually worse. Because if somebody's saying something which is garbage, you can pay them a bit, bit more money, you know, to say, say something else, but instead they actually believe this stuff. Now, there's a background problem, and I'll will elaborate on this later. The the background problem is that economists have been struck by numerous logical and empirical problems with their own theories and they've made what they call simplifying assumptions to get around these problems and the simplifying assumptions are simply off with the turkeys um you know it's not a simplifying assumption uh to assume that there's an infinite number of firms in the economy for example okay that's ludicrous because there's an infinite number of firms and you're producing a finite amount of goods then you'd have to integrate the output of a a sub-infinity of goods to get one, out, one unit of output. Now, when you look at the models, let's imagine there's a continuum of firms from zero, zero to one, infinite number of firms in that space. That's bad mathematics, simply bad mathematics. Um, but that, that's a minor example. There's many, many, many others. Um, so if you, so you start making these so-called simplifying assumptions, after a while, you get a newer, just how ridiculous they are. They're not simplifying. They're critical assumptions. But you call them simplifying. And this dates right back to Milton Friedman writing a paper called The Methodology of Positive Economics back in 1953, largely to advise people not to read empirical research that was showing that firms do not face the rising marginal cost. That's an essential part of the model of how firms set, set prices. So they've had a history of doing this, and that's one, that's one thing. They, 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 they'll, they'll make what is a critical assumption and call it a simplifying one. And that's what's happening in this case, obviously. Uh, they will also, it gives them a faith in capitalism as the, the ultimate social system It can handle anything. You know, Hit it with a shock, shortly later well, you'll be back at equilibrium again. So their mentality is just that capitalism can cope with anything, therefore climate change can't be a serious problem. Now, you, you wouldn't get them admitting that. Uh, you, you, Toll Tol will say it. Toll says it all the time. Um, but that's their framework. And so that's the starting point. And then they say, well, you know, we're, we're great econometricians. So they're, they're great on taking a bunch of numbers and then transforming them through all sorts of tests about significance and so on. Dickie Fuller test this and so on and so forth. So that's what they've done. So, okay, well, let's, let's grab some data that we, we can call data on climate. We'll make the simplifying assumption that we, climate, weather equals, climate equals weather uh, and that we'll use current data and we predict what's going to happen in the future. And it is you think you bunch of turkeys you simply cannot do that because this uh, the 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 data you've got depends upon the climate we've got right now, which is those three circulation cells, temperature level of the global being the average it was in pre-industrial days. As you rise the temperature, the whole pattern of the way that the uh, Earth atmosphere circulates, the amount of energy in the ocean, the amount of carbolic acid in the ocean. All these things change dramatically, and that changes the, the, the viability of this planet for life. And, and they just gloss over the top of it. So, like, for example, the most recent example I got of that was a bunch of economists. Well, one criticism which economists have copped is you haven't taken tipping points into account. So what's going to happen if we go from a, an Arctic that reflects all the sunlight that falls on 90% the sunlight that falls on it, which is what ice does, to an Arctic that absorbs 90%, which is what blue ocean water does. What if we lose the summer sea ice? What happens to the temperature balance of the planet? Because that is equivalent to I, I don't know if, I don't see either a billion or a trillion tons, I think it's a billion tons of carbon, but the, the impact of that reflective thing disappearing is like adding very, very rapidly because you're going you, you can go from ice for ice covered, which is what it was 30 years ago. To ice-free, which it may be in five years' time or thirty-five years' worth, that's like doubling our annual carbon dioxide output in terms of the amount of heat that it traps on the on the planet. Because that heat, rather than reflecting back into outer space again, gets absorbed by the ocean and then transfers through the through the um, ocean with the with the, with the, the um, all the various uh, um, currents in the ocean. So that that is absolutely huge now. They took, they said, well, what happens if we lose the Arctic summer sea ice? Greenland, the West Antarctic ice shelf, the Amazon, the Gulf Stream, as you mentioned a moment ago. The technical term is the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, the Indian monsoon that goes crazy or or breaks down, permafrost, so all the carbon dioxide that's stored in the frozen tundra that all gets released, and finally, ocean methane hydrates. It's eight ocean methane hydrates are. Methane, we know that is stored under great pressure and, and, and cold at great depths in the ocean. So, it's, what if all that stuff gets released? Well, they said that that'll change GDP by 1.4%. Now, I'm sorry, if those elements of the planet disappear, we won't be on the same fucking planet. Okay. It'll be uh, the chaos that will cause in terms of the volatility of the weather. Uh, and and the survivability of various economic activities and social activities will just disappear. And there they're saying 1.4%.
0: And that, by the way...
1: Yeah, you are. And and, and that's what's actually happened. It is
0: just
1: a... It's it's a collective blindness. I mean, it's, it's... but imagine you were trying to convince somebody in in in, um, in uh, Scientology that uh, you know that it's bullshit. What chance have you got? Okay, they they simply are so used to this stuff that that they continue pumping it out as if it's realistic, and they're, and they're frankly amazed when anybody says they've um, they've um, they've made a mistake, and um, uh, they reply like I, I wrote a, a letter to them. Uh, through um, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, so they they, they published, their paper on climate sh- on on tipping points was published in, I hate the abbreviation, but I can't say without smiling, PNAS, okay? okay, and that's one of the world's three most prestigious journals. And we began by saying that is, you've just you've just got to have, you know, we, we quoted Robert Solo. Solo spoke at the the Congress, American Congress. Where Robert Solo is a leading neoclassical, but he's a critic. Uh, of, of parts of how the theory is applied. So he spoke to um, the um, um, American Congress about why did models miss the global financial crisis, and he said these models, the people who build these models don't, they don't pass the smell test. It has to make sense. Okay, so you think they've lost their sense of smell altogether. Now that's that applies on steroids to this lot because when we said it's obvious that this, you know, losing those tipping points would just destroy. The possibility of, of, of sedentary civilization. They said, "Oh, he, he seems to think that would be a bigger change." Yeah, and we've given a lower bound. Now, here's this 1.4 percent bullshit again. They're predicting, I think, about. If, they said, but if there's a six degree increase in three degree increase in temperature and all those tipping points go, the tipping points lad one one percent water damage. If the six degrees and the tipping points go, they'll add 1.4 percent water damage. So Nordhaus is saying in his 2018 American Econ Review paper, after he got the Nobel Prize, he said that a six degree in temperature degree to increasing average temperature would reduce GDP by eight point. 9%, I think. They then said another 1.4%. So the actual impact on taking and tipping accounts into account, about 11% fall in GDP from a 6-degree temperature rise. We would be extinct. Okay. We, we possibly find a bunch of humans you know, would survive somewhere in the, in the, in the northern, the, the, around the frozen tundra, maybe. Nobody could come out of doors anywhere between 0 and 60 degrees north most of the time because the temperature would kill you. Okay, uh, and in that situation, they're saying, you know, including the temperature change plus tipping points, ten percent fall in GDP by twenty one hundred. Now, it is just ludicrous but they're so caught up in their little way of thinking they they can't even see that. And they re- 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 reply, so well, how else is a lower bound, you know. Well, again, this nonsense of two one decimal place accuracy. Okay, if you're trying to predict GDP in twenty one hundred. Don't pull my leg and say you can get it accurate to one decimal place or even 1%. The best accuracy you're ever going to get is those, a 10% range. So you round 1.4% one, 1. In, in terms of 10%, you get zero. So what they're saying is losing all that stuff, no effect. Now, that is seriously diluted. And the trouble is they're taken seriously as scientists and people like Stuart Kirk from HSBC read there Read the summaries. Of their stuff never check and see how they get these bloody numbers, and then come out and say why don't we don't worry about financial? Why bother? Why would you bother? And that, unfortunately, is the mentality that that is seeped
0: into politicians and journalists. I think that's what you just touched on. There is plays a large part in this: is that people people don't know how to uh, disseminate and and criticise the claims that some of these economists are making in the way that say so you do, and so. They're presented in, in this pedestaled manner by these experts and then embraced by people, like for public people, which I maybe wanted to mention uh, later, but like um, Bjorn Lomberg and Michael um, Schellenberger and, 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 and those kinds. Um, and so maybe just to quickly summarize what you've been going over, at the start, like, clearly you made the point that energy isn't included into these into these functions, into these, into these coefficients. And which is obviously clearly erroneous, even just from the simple perspective that as temperature increases, um, either upwards or downwards, you're going to see an increase in energy consumption due to a need to moderate those temperatures internally or externally through either heating or cooling, which is going to use more energy, which is going to result in more, let's say, fossil fuel consumption at this point in time, which is going to increase our temperatures and so on so and it's kind of a circular circular flow on effect but and so that's one point and that's just a simple part of that equation but um you've outlined that economists views are very tightly confined to an isolated perspective of income at the level of industry and particularly industry indoors applied to gdp um and and temperature, um, saying that a small inc- using a using a smooth function on Nord, on Nordhaus's part that a in- increase in temperature is going to in, in the graph itself it's ex- it's relatively exponential it's not linear but a smooth function is going. That's to- actually a very good story. it's simply a parabola.
1: Okay, but the, what he's using is a parabola, not exponential. Exponential, I wouldn't be complaining as much. It's parabola. So what you get is, according to his, his, his parabola, uh, y equals 0.02 times x squared. That's pretty much his sub- summary, okay? Mm-hmm. Of,
0: but missing, so missing that crucial?
1: Yeah, 2% two, two multiplied by,
0: um, hmm. you know, uh, temperature change for the change in GDP. And missing that crucial point of, of tipping points, which is, as you summarized that, along that increase, along that curve of temperature increase and in GDP Decrease. There's not going to be any particular particular events that will shatter that curve effectively, or result in a massive spike in GDP loss, or even well, no, most, like, downwards. In GDP. Downwards. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or up, massive spike up in up spike up in temperature. Well, of course. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly.
0: Um, which seems, as you've just laid out, there's plenty of reasons why that is erroneous, um, and it's a relatively straightforward point. And so you you touched on this I think at the start of our conversation before we kind of deep dived, but if the work of all of these people are so faulty, then how are they like Nordhaus? how are they getting Nobel and you've you've already kind of elaborated on this, but how are they getting Nobel prizes for it? Is it just that they're as you mentioned, their their findings uh, it might be cynical, but their findings are just convenient, uh, that they're just simply not able, Yeah, uh, no one's it, investigating them well, so he, um, properly.
1: No one's investigating. I've forgotten Rom Don Lomborg, which he, to talk about a charlatan. One way you can show he's a charlatan. He, he cherry-picks scientific data to find you know, flaws in the data or, or things he can you know, focus upon and ignore the full detail, but he's diving down to find stuff that he can pull apart. He just quotes things as economists as if they're gold. You know, he never says, "Oh, but look at this." Nordhouse assumes eighty-seven percent of industry will be unaffected by climate change. Isn't that silly? He never does that. It's always on the science side that he tries to, uh, you know, pull apart, find holes, and and pull them apart, and so on. Um, but yeah, people people just don't. Um, um, oh, by the way, I'm going to, have to go now and get my power supply because my power. Supply, I just ran from the the study here. I've got twenty-nine uh, percent. Give me a moment to come back with the power cable.
0: Yes, so pardon me, if we get get our train of thought back there again. Um, so what? Yeah. So my my question was, you know, as we're discussing, it appears as if the reasoning um, and the outputs of these economists are faulty, and yet they're somehow managing to get PhDs for them. In the case of Nordhaus, um, and is it is it just purely cynical in that their their findings are convenient, or? Or what? What's going on there? Why is this the case?
1: um, Well, you know, as you said, not not just got the Nobel Prize for it. Was president of the American Economic Association, and writes one of the dominant textbooks. He actually edits Samuelson's textbook. So it's it's the 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 longest running textbook in economics is written by William Nordhaus.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So what what is going on is economics is a belief system. Okay, they think it's a science. Okay, they're quite convinced they're being scientific, but it's a belief system. And in that sense, your best analogy is the Catholic Church, okay? And now, will the Catholic Church award a prize in religion to a Muslim? Probably not. Okay. So that's what they do, they reward a prize to the most faithful member of the church, and that's what Nordhaus is. So he got the prize because he's promoting the religion. That's not what they call it for. Uh, but literally that's that's the way you get success they put in a few people occasionally who are critics So, for example paul romer got the prize in the same year and paul romer has an excellent paper called the trouble with macroeconomics which is it's never been published but it's on the web the trouble with macroeconomics and he goes through rubbishing conventional macroeconomics so they'll occasionally put a critic forward as well as putting somebody who's a, um, a supporter of the religion. But fundamentally, you've got to be neoclassical, get, get the prize. There have been a few exceptions. Um, but uh, generally speaking, it's it's people who promote the religion in the most uh, influential way. And at the moment, of course, climate change influential. Uh, he wasn't the only potential recipient within the religion for the Nobel Prize for Economics on Climate Change, there's a guy called Martin Wein- Weitzman. Now, Weitzman committed suicide shortly after Nordhaus got the prize, and there's, mm. you know, nobody knows. I don't think he left a suicide note, but a fair bit of people say, you know, he basically thought partly I should have got it, and but it's also he's so depressed about what the. Potential dangers are, he was actually talking about what he called fat tail events. So things that are, you know, you might have a statistical average, but there can be this big event. So we're increasing the probability of these big events. So his research was that the other end of the mainstream still saying, well, we could have stuff which totally wipes out our data range. It just becomes something that we just rule out because it can't happen within three standard deviations. What if we get a 20 standard deviation event, which by that, by the way, the financial crisis was 20 standard deviations from the mainstream theory in terms of the impact on the stock market and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, therefore, we've got to take that seriously. Well, you know, he's gone. Uh, But but most of the uh, people in economics, A, don't pay much attention to climate change. So uh, Nicholas Stern did an empirical survey of economics journals, the leading economics journals, about either 10 or 30 of them, I think. He found less than 100 articles had been published in those journals on climate change. And one of the leading journalists published no articles on climate change. So economists in general aren't particularly fussed about it. And if one bunch of economists decide to specialise in producing papers on that topic yeah, let them do it. And and they themselves don't pay serious attention to it. So what you get after a while is the people who are asked to referee this stuff are the people who themselves published in the same tradition. And the people who come to do subsequent work have done PhDs with the ones who have already been published. And you get a little cabal now, even Richard Toll, admitted that. And that 2009 paper, it comes from a very small group of researchers who know each other well. And he was talking about people who use the GDP change, temperature change data, and then produce all sorts of other things coming it. It is about 300 of those. But the people have done the actual so-called studies on the impact of climate change on GDP. There's about 20 or 30 of them. It's really a small group of people. Mm-hmm. And what they've, they've, they're all enthusiastic. They all think each, they're all geniuses, particularly Richard Toll. Um, they they support each other and 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 boost each other up. And the general ethos has been was initially defined as low an estimate as you can find. Now they've elaborated a bit and they're trying to find more ways of getting estimates. So rather than just using strict uh, GDP to temperature, they're now getting really clever in shaking change in GDP to change in temperature. And using that, they've got much, much higher levels, like for example, pay paper by Khan and Hardy, so that's one of the three you mentioned there. They took data on change in GDP and change in temperature between, I think, 1960 and 2014, and they extrapolated that forward linearly out to 2100.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that's meaning no tipping points, okay? Mm-hmm. Just assuming no tipping points. Uh, the and then the tipping point caper comes out and, and just says, oh, we can extrapolate tipping points using a bloody parabola, which, again, is a smooth function with no rapid points of change. hmm so the, it is incredible how they just a little cabal who all think they're really smart and all think they're doing great work, and all pat each other on the back and so on. And they're producing this delusional garbage, and they will not look outside their own
0: little bagley wick. Sounds as if you were if you were to meet someone on the street, um, and they would ask you about climate economists. You would just say, "Don't listen to them. Just forget about them. Move on. It's a bunch of More nonsense." More than don't listen
1: to them. Yeah, you're total nonsense. So the trouble is that's what's determined the actual policy response because most politicians and most journalists have done a bit of economics and no science. And what they think, I and mean, frankly, I don't criticize them, is I felt the same thing. Without reading the literature, they think economists are taking estimates by scientists and then trans- translating those into GDP impact in and then discounting them because they're a long way in the future. Mm-hmm. And they're flying too high discount rate. That's what I thought they were doing. Instead, I found they're making up their own numbers and they even produce their own models. They don't mm-hmm. use the models that climate climate scientists produce, which are called global circulation models or GCMs. They don't use those. They produce their own, which are called integrated assessment models or IAMs. And they, rather than just you know, taking the science input as given and then putting it through their e- economic work, they make their own models of climate change. Here's the punchline. Those models do not include precipitation, hmm. okay? okay? They don't include rainfall. Yeah. Now, the GCMs do, okay? So that paper by Toll where he said that losing the AMOC would be a good thing because it would... Reg- he actually said if the, if the AMOC, the mid-gulf the stream, disappeared completely, global GDP would increase by 1.1%. Okay? Now his model, and he admits it in the same paper written in 2016, doesn't include precipitation. But he said we assume other climate variables move in the same direction as temperature. Now what he's got is a you know a upside down parabola. Here's your the best situation, and then if you get a rise in temperature, you fall in GDP. Equally, a fall in temperature, fall in GDP. We're here, glo- global global warming, and moves over the peak and back again, lo- lo- losing AMOC pushes you back a bit towards the peak again, that's why it improves the situation. And he's assuming if temperature improves, getting closer to the ideal temperature, which I think in his model is 13 degrees Celsius average temperature, uh, getting closer to that will make things better. And he's saying, oh, rainfall will get better too. No, it won't. Now, the scientists who do these global circulation models Uh, A guy called Tim Lenton did a model for the OECD last year. Mm -hmm. And in that model, he said his model looked at what is the impact of a two and a half degree increase in temperature and losing the Gulf Stream on Europe and and the globe in general, because they can actually, the models are global. And uh, he said that the impact on wheat output would be such as to reduce the percentage of the land of the planet that could grow wheat from 20% to 7%. Mm-hmm. And the potentially could grow corn from 14% to, I think, 5%. So, they said the impact of losing the AMOC plus 2.5 degrees Celsius temperature increase would be catastrophic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that's realistic because it's including rainfall. Yeah, no, no, so these idiots in economics, none of them have yet included precipitation in
0: their models. You, you paint a pretty disparaging picture of economics. So, ah. Uh... economics was one of my majors at university and people it's one that it's a field of study that receives a lot of criticism particularly for young people because it seemed to align with i think just broadly speaking with with markets and capitalism and associated with all the woes of the world in that in that in that sense um profits money whatnot um, which a lot of young people particularly anyone that goes to universities tends to be relatively left-leaning and that seems to be the sentiment of the of my time it seems Um, Mm. and criticisms some of the criticisms that people would make um, about it say oh yeah I do economics and people like oh but isn't well first off but that's just that's just theories it's not how the real world works right or but how do you, you know, it's, it's all based off past data, data of the past, which in, in and of itself isn't necessarily the, the incorrect thing. Like you've said, if you're using data to predict future events where you've got a future that's different from the past fundamentally in terms of changing climate, then perhaps you're being erroneous there. But I, was never, I never knew how to quite respond properly to some of these criticisms and some of these claims, because obviously economics is a major the economy economics in manifesting as the economy is is a major system and there are rules and um there it's it has a certain way of working um and in a manner that can be you know, in some ways at least understood and described and truthfully and accurately, at least that's my perception of it. So what maybe just briefly just to sideline to tangent, what do you make of the field of economics, broadly speaking? Is it just this this field of climate economics and neoclassical that does, as you say, is to dominate the um, dominate the field as just being unhelpful and out of touch with reality, or is, is the field as a whole partic- not particularly have much not have much utility? The field, the field as a whole. <clears throat> and, and this is one of the problems. My, my analogy, which I
1: hope makes sense to people, is imagine astronomy at the time of Copernicus. What you had at that time, the vast majority of astronomers were building models of the of the solar system based on um, originally Aristotle and then Ptolemy's model, where the Earth is at the center of the universe and the sun and the moon and stars and planets all circle around the Earth on perfect, perfectly, perfectly spherical crystalline spheres. Okay? And the mystery they had was, well, the planet, sometimes you know, Mars is going that way in the sky, and it's going that way in the sky. So how do we explain that? Well, we put the circle on, on the spheres, and Mars, is, rather than being on the sphere, is on a circle. So the circle is sometimes going, you know, if you've got a circle doing that, and you're watching it from the Earth, while it's rotating this way on the overall sphere, then Acacia is going to be going that way and Acacia is going to go that way. And it was incredibly elaborate mathematics. You you took a lot of work to build one of these models because you you were trying to fit out a, a circle um, that fitted Mars, another one that fitted Venus, another one for Jupiter, one for Saturn, uh, Mercury. You had, uh, and if you went for more accuracy in one, you might have less accuracy in another. They had, they had all things they've had. Everything, but they got deference and epicycles and offsets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All this stuff you could tweak. Everybody's model was different. Everybody else's model, but the same basic idea that the Earth was the center. That was the paradigm. And along comes uh, Tycho Brahe and Ken- Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo, and they're saying the Earth is not the center of the u- universe. The Sun is the center of our solar system. And they were ridiculed. Okay. And in fact, initially their models couldn't predict as accurately as the as the Tollmaker astronomers good because the Tollmaker had 1,500 years to tweak their models and get their arithmetic right. So even each individual model differed, they were more accurate than what Copernicus and Galileo and co. were saying. But, of course, they were completely wrong. They got the structure of the universe completely wrong. Anybody who believes that now is a flat-Earther and deserves to be ridiculed, okay? particularly in the days of Elon Musk rockets and we're watching, you know, seeing the Earth nine minutes Above and back down again. How anybody can maintain flat Earth is now. I simply do not know. Um, It's it's religious in that sense. Um, So the same thing applies with economists. They have this elaborate theory um, where rather than Earth being the centre of the universe being the organising concept, the organising concept is a market that reaches equilibrium. And they built their entire uh, theory on the basis of capitalism being a system which reaches equilibrium. Now, I can't think of a less realistic description of capitalism because the interesting stuff in capitalism, the reason why it's so much more fascinating than previous social systems and so much more creative is change. We're forever having change in technology, change in income distribution, and change in the climate rating, all that as well. So you need a model that looks at change and disequilibrium. And that's people like people like Schumpeter, one person who had a very strong disequilibrium interpretation of the economy, as did Keynes to some extent. Though he hadn't broken away enough from the um, from the equilibrium way of thinking. Uh, Minsky, Fisher. So you have all these people who've done non-equilibrium work, and they're, they're they're the heretics. In that sense, they're the Copernicus, and I'm I'm one of the successors to that group. So what you have is a religious view that sees the system as dominated by equilibrium. And everything is pushed back into an equilibrium framework. If you talk to a neoclassical economist, every second word, one, one word is the, and the next word is equilibrium. Okay, They can't help but reason in that fashion. When you look at modern sciences, they've they've got non-equilibrium concepts. We can model a system out of equilibrium. Uh, it's, it's no longer necessary to assume anything happens in equilibrium. And the only way that a system is in equilibrium is if it's completely dead and frozen to absolute zero. Everything changes. So... With what they've done is developed this incredibly elaborate mathematical structure over the last 150 years, and the, the people today would, would not understand how it actually got to where they are, but it began from this equilibrium way of thinking, and now equilibrium has become a religion to them. So they think, you know, uh, they do want to remove anything that stops us reaching equilibrium. So this is their Valhalla on Earth. So... But It looks incredibly sophisticated, but it's sophisticated in the same sense Ptolemy's mathematics. okay? But it's wrong. You need to change your structure completely. And uh, and that's where I do non-equilibrium work. I've built a software package for dynamic modelling and economics called Minsky, uh, and the post-Keynesian group haven't broken away enough from the equilibrium. They're still sort of affected by what they've been taught. But you, you do get this breakaway from equilibrium thinking uh, the mainstream forget about money. They leave money out of their models on equilibrium arguments again, uh, which is nonsense. You've got to include money in a capitalist economy and understand it properly. So I don't necessarily go with the left or right critiques. I go with the correct critiques. And their their model of the economy is describing a structure that does not exist. When you look at the empirical data, it cannot exist. And yet they're calling that capitalism. Now, the, the, they've... Again, it's, it, you might as well, it's, You try to persuade a neoclassical economist he's wrong, you might as well try to persuade, persuade uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a Scientologist, like, uh, what's his name? Um, Tom Top Cruise? Gun,
0: uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise,
1: that his religion is wrong. Good luck. Good
0: luck. Yeah, yeah, okay. There's uh, there's a lot there, and I personally would be fascinated to unpack that a little bit more, but... Perhaps I don't want to because that'd be that's an entire other conversation in and of itself. Perhaps yeah. for another time, alongside maybe another conversation, yeah. which yeah, which I would like to have at some point. Um, maybe about Australia's property market and the housing boom, which I know you have yeah. thoughts on. So, but anyway, back back on topic, back to the climate change and whatnot. Um, so I mentioned, I touched on. Um. Well, I just I mentioned Bjorn Lomborg and Michael Schellenberger who, for those who don't know, uh, uh, let's say climate alarmist s- skeptics, um, I think they describe themselves as. Um, Lomborg, Lomborg, has, Lomborg has written the book The Skeptical Environmentalist along with a bunch of others and whatnot and how to spend 75 billion dollars to save the planet or something like that and then more recently, Michael Schellenberger has written um, "Apocalypse Never." Now, this work has been embraced by those two. Well, I'm, I know that it has been embraced by Lomberg, I'm, less, I'm I, I believe it has been place, embraced by Schellenberger. And Lomberg has done. He's someone I came across a while ago and was quite fascinated by, actually, um, initially, and I still am to an extent. But so back in he runs he runs the Copenhagen Consensus Center. And back in 2009, he uh, grouped five world-class climate economists um, of the kinds that we've been talking about to come up with a a ranking um, of how you would best spend $250 billion per year globally to combat climate change. And he had a ranking of very good to very poor. And within that was... Things like climate engineering, marine cloud whitening. Um, I was in very good. In good was adaptation. In fair was things like forestry, so expanding and protecting forests, um, and what and carbon offsetting and stuff. Some of that stuff, which is the industry that I work in, um, cutting methane, and then carbon taxing at the very bottom as being very poor. So, uh, kind of touched on that earlier. But um, what what do you make of Let's say just briefly these individuals and the kind of work that they, the work that they do and the words that they proffer, um, the and the ideas that they preach. Do you do you see them as being just utterly unhelpful, or do you think there are truth some truths in some uh, of their claims? Uh, utterly unhelpful. They're, they're put
1: they're they putting this on a scale where and if you actually read the IPC report from two thousand and fourteen, which Toll wrote the economics chapter chapter ten, I think of working group two. Mm-hmm. Um, they're basically saying it's a minor problem. Okay? Mm-hmm. There are many, yes, many other that matter more than climate change. That's the sort of thing they're saying. That is complete, not unhelpful, that is delusional. And that's the trouble. Because they're saying, you know, let's get life expectancy and education and access to fresh water, blah, 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 and that's far more important. If we get the sort of temperature levels they're casually throwing around four and six degrees Celsius, we won't have an infrastructure to deliver water anymore, okay? Uh, we won't be able to survive in the areas where we've currently got pipes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so it's, it's what they, I, I call them the Neville Chamberlains of climate change. This is now time, okay? All we need is to do is sign a document, and there's now going to be no world war. And uh, you sign the document, and then Hitler invades Europe. And this is your sign you, you you do this stuff, and climate change wipes out Europe. So it is uh, it is. They're, they're implying a scale which is completely trivializing the dangers we face. And my, my way of thinking about it is, is it, I know people, a lot of climate change deniers say, so, well, climate's always changed. Yes, that's true. There's I think it's Milenkovich cycles, I might have pronounced them wrongly. But Milenkovich cycles, roughly 100,000 years long, peaks to trough in terms of going from a warm period to ice age and back again. And if you look at where we evolved as a industrial... We evolved about 200,000, 300,000 years ago, Homo sapiens. There have been two peaks since then, one very early on, and now the last uh, peak was literally where we are right now. Uh, we're, and we're a turning point in that cycle. And, in fact, when you look at where human industrial civilization began, it was coming out of the last ice age. Temperatures 20,000 years ago were 4 degrees Celsius below, 4 to 6 Degrees Celsius on average for the planet below where we started building uh, sedentary civilizations. So, the reason we had a stable climate it's actually a turning point in this cycle. So, you've got this r- rapidly increasing temperature, rapidly falling temperature, rapidly mean in terms of you know, units of 10, 15,000 years. Uh, but the turning point is where we evolved our industrial civilization. So, if we hadn't had if we had no impact to the climate, we'd now be heading back down again into a cold, into an ice age. Okay. So it was a quirk of history and, and, and you know, geological history that we built our industrial civilizations right at this peak. Now, if we let it go back into into um, freezing, then we'd be wiped out by glaciers at some point. Uh, what we're doing is just pushing in the other direction. We should have gone horizontal. So we evolved roughly, you know, the I think the average temperature of the planet is about 14 degrees Celsius, 14 and a half above. The average temperature of the whole planet, 14 degrees above Celsius, zero. Um, we should have tried to maintain that average. That would be intelligent. Instead, what they've, by trivialising it, to say climate is no different to the weather, we're blasting out of that range. And that's the mistake they've made. Uh, the, they're, they're treating... Daily fluctuations here as equivalent to blasting out of that, that range. And that will eliminate the capacity for sedentary civilization, whether we go above or below. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's more than one, one degree plus or minus. Treating, uh, treating could weather, be catastrophic. Like,
0: treating climate like weather. Yeah. You're trying to model, model yeah, climate fact, as, if it's, yeah. as if, it's, if it's like weather. I, <clears throat> yeah, I remember watching a podcast. Um, I think it was Jordan Peterson's podcast with Michael Schellenberger. Um, and there was one point in particular, which was, and he's a very reasonable sounding um, person and intelligent sounding person, and, um, but yeah, there was one point in particular, an ecological ecological point, um, which I wish I could remember the specifics of it now, but it was just nonsense, and it was. It was particularly frustrating for me i come from a background of um eco- ecologists family of a bunch of ecologists and so whatever this point was it was it was very clearly just wrong and poorly reasoned and frustrated me a lot and as as these things tend to do for people as i'm sure this ha- has done for you this whole climate econ- economics um sort of landscape for for some many many years now and I think that there was one question that I wanted to pose before a final point um, so what what do you think the or well, two questions really what do you think ultimately just to to wrap it up you've been alluding to it this whole time, but the consequences of the work of people like Nordhaus and what have you and Schellenberger Lomberg are and do you think that your analysis and your take on things and your critique has made much headway or enough headway?
1: I'm the latter, definitely not. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Why? I, mean, I, th- I think that largely because I'm outside the mainstream. I don't get listened to. Mm-hmm. I get I get some you know, like that particular article. I think the Globalization's Journal, the appallingly bad neoclassical economics of climate change, that had a, a huge number of hits on Twitter mm-hmm. uh, but it didn't get any newspaper coverage worth mm-hmm. speaking of uh, and at the same time there's there's a, a sense in which they were the aura or of respectability he has a here's a Nobel Prize he went to he's at Yale this bastard's keen um, yeah, he's got a PhD in economics but he taught at, you know he's at Kingston University that's the third rate university in the UK why take him seriously mm-hmm. that is the sort of even you know that is a sort of um, disparaging, don't even bother looking at the person or the argument, just take a look at the status. Uh, so that, that's incredibly hard for me to break through that. It's one reason mm-hmm. I tried to run for parliament, to actually get past that barrier and mm-hmm. be able to say this sort of stuff in the Senate. Obviously mm-hmm. a highly unsuccessful campaign. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it is really the re- reputational thing. Like he's got a Nobel Prize. He must know what he's talking about. That's the sort of thing that, that gets in the way. Um, and people accept it. And when you actually go and check and see how, how the numbers have got, you're horrified. I mean, I've never seen work this bad. I've been a critic of the mainstream for 50 years. This is the worst shit I've ever seen in terms of how transparently stupid it is. I don't need to talk about um uh you know the impossibility of revealed preference or rising marginal, uh, marginal cost versus falling or um, you know, endogenous money, blah, 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 none of the complicated stuff at all saying, well, this is just nonsense to assume that you can use the weather to predict the impact of climate change. So that's, that's the real difficulty that I'm, I just don't get through. And the impact they've had is to trivialise the dangers. That's why I use the Chamberlain. I mean, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you mention Hitler, you lose the argument. No, here I'm saying, if you want to say what these guys are doing, they're like Chamberlain saying, you know, let's just negotiate with him. Okay. Mm-hmm. we can get an agreement peace in our time and the next day he invades Poland or whatever it was that it, uh, it that, you know or, or France that it wipes out the peace um, you are being had you're being conned and in that sense uh, that's what's happening here they're trivializing the dangers and and scientists themselves aren't as aware as they should be that this is happening because again they think well economists are scientists you know the discipline to get PhD got a Nobel Prize but um, why should we... We shouldn't really check it. They, they would use theories we don't understand. And if we dive in and criticise them, we'll make mistakes because we'll make elementary errors and not knowing economics. That's a large part of why scientists themselves haven't pulled this stuff apart. But any that have, and I know some, there, there's a description of these guys, quote-unquote, as dangerous morons.
0: hmm well, That's certainly the picture that you've been painting for um, this past hour or so. Now, to... To sort of top things off, I wanted to ask, or pose a question, I suppose, or an idea, set of ideas to you. Well, not maybe, not really pose a set of ideas, but just just touch on something on the ideas on the on certain aspects of environmentalism and environmental activism. Um, just to just to garner your thoughts on this because it's something that I have. To put me in contention with uh, um, a lot of environmental activism, so forgive me for reading off a piece of paper here, but I just wanted to make sure I got it as concisely as possible so it seems to me that much of our issues around the climate dialogue has been due to a certain level of politicization um, of the topic um, and perhaps this is why the economic things feeds in so well because economics is so quite tightly tied to. Um, politics by and large. Um, and so perhaps beginning, and this perhaps began, this politicization began with the, an inconvenient truth by Al Gore. It made it a bit of a lefty issue. And that's, that's an analysis made a few times by people like Steven Pinker um, in, 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 Enlightenment now. And I also think that, but I also think that beyond the influence of Interested parties like the coal, gas industry, um, and and people like these um, climate economic economists who are trivializing this trivializing this issue, progress has been hindered or not particularly helped by voices like like Greta Thunberg who verge on demagoguery and deri- derisive moralising in their in their tone um, with, f- with a fair serving of oversimplification of, of, of the topics at hand. Because the thing that we're trying to do here with greening and making our economies and our systems more sustainable is an incredibly complex and difficult operation like... Uh, my last podcast with an old professor of mine, we were touching on the nature of the fossil food, fossil food industry um, and how that... Sorry, the food industry and how that has been heavily... That is supported by fossil fuels fundamentally because you need hydrogen to produce ammonia, which is a major fertiliser, and you need liquid natural gas to produce hydrogen, at least at this point in time. Um, and so... part. Yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. Now, part of the problem there is that with this move towards a less carbon dioxide intensive energy system, we are diverting a lot of our LNG to um, energy production or stopping the production of new LNG um, uh, supply lines to begin with, which is making it more and more expensive and more and more difficult to produce hydrogen cheaply, to produce ammonia cheaply for farmers, which is driving up the price of fertiliser, which is driving up the price of food and is, going, is probably going to be driving, um, particularly in marginal regions, farmers into poverty. And so it's a circular element there of saying, well, we don't want more LNG because we want to move towards green technologies. But unfortunately, although it's perhaps getting close, we're not there yet producing things, particularly at mass scale, things like ammonia, um, without using these fossil fuels. And so I don't think that, uh, I suppose, I don't think that simplification and oversimplification and bashing the other side with blunt simplified tools, as is done by both sides in the debate, um, the climate debate, is particularly helpful, and yet that seems to be a large part of activism it's just by nature um, and I think actually more so on on the pro side on on the left side of things than than the right side of things even um, probably just because the left are more seem to be more concerned and making more noise about it um, so I guess I just wanted to see what your thoughts are on on that and and, and your take on sort of the nature of environmental and climate activism and where you think it goes wrong or where you think it's perfectly fine?
1: The thing you're, leaving, you're, you're um, alluding to is a lack of systems thinking, both by the economists and by the climate change activists. So, like for example, on the natural gas front, the last thing we should be doing in natural gas for is heating uh, because it's such an essential part of our food system right now. And mm-hmm. if we start getting shortages of natural Gas, or we find we can't use it anymore, then there goes our food system. And uh, like in terms of the impact of superphosphate on on food production, we're looking. if we didn't have superphosphate, we'd be looking at a 75% or more fall in agricultural output mm-hmm. because it's such an essential part of our, of our food system. So we have to reserve that. And so that's if we, until such time as we can find a replacement way to generate those fertilisers or replacement food systems to generate that food. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that stuff is reserved for food, exactly. not burnt to keep homes warm. Um, so that's that's a systems level of thinking. And, and you also have to look at the economic system the same way, which is, again, not properly done by either uh, the, the left or the right. I can understand the left's frustration because, a bit like me, you're screaming into a void.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the, the right can, can have a, a blasé attitude to it because, in that sense, they're... There are, you know, people the, the fossil fuel groups already in charge who are trying to um, get them to not use the resources they've got, not profit out of the, the minerals they own. And they're they're very happy to have a delay in that happening with very, very short-term thinking. So that's that's the real the reason that the frustration arises. Um and, and, and I, again, the economist plays a huge role here, because if we'd realistically assess the dangers. Than 50 mm-hmm. years ago or more, we would have said yes. We've got to do something at the systemic level. What controls can we bring in to stop population growing too much? To stop um, resource depletion going too much? Uh, to reduce our carbon dioxide output, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera? We would have turned green 50 years ago, and because we haven't. Um, then the, it's much much more dire. So what you've got really people screaming, for Christ's sake, this is going to happen soon, do something about it, and they'll scream in ways that appear incoherent or stupid. Trouble mm-hmm. is if they're right, and I believe they are right, then within a decade we're going to be saying, why didn't you warn us more clearly?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you think that it is simply it is much more a matter of screaming into a void rather than... Using the wrong words to scream, or, or better yet, speaking in measured tones, or that they're screaming and/or speaking in measured tones at a at a, at a complex beast I mean, that because yeah. you say that if you think that if 50 years ago if we would cottoned onto these things then um, we would have been making the changes necessary from an earlier point to to, to make the change that we want, and my. Dealing from time time that I spent in chemistry and whatnot, it's just that the technologies that are needed to replace these systems, and just the simple the nature of energy loss across the system production systems of production is so great. Like from going to trying to produce ammonia, so trying to produce hydrogen, green hydrogen, to the point in a plant in a green hydrogen plant. To the point where it's been transported um, either uh, comp- turned into ammonia or just is just as h2 diatomic h2 and reached its next system you get like a 30 to 40 percent energy loss at that point which is enormous um and and so i suppose it's 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 been my feeling that perhaps we could have changed the tone of the conversation earlier but it's not necessarily. It's not self-evident to me that we had, or would have had the, the technological advances to implement, um, that change of tone. Um, now that maybe that's something that just it's just simply because we didn't we started late, um, maybe um, but it's not it's not clear to me. I suppose what the case is, there.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, but even so, like we had, we were getting solar technology 30 years ago, mm-hmm. um, wind technology as well. Nuclear is, is improving. I mean, I've, I've, I've learned a lot Nuclears about Nuclear
0: is a good, maybe just quickly, do you want to touch on that? Why don't we have more yeah, nuclear? Yeah. Why is nuclear so heavily stigmatized and seen as like, okay, maybe, do you think that the, 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 the concerns against nuclear are particularly justified. Like, why is Germany turning off no, their nuclear power plants and going yeah, back that's to coal? Yeah, huge is this just huge yeah. ideology? But this, um, it just it's an ideological stance. But it also seems to be almost tied into environmentalism and the left. Correct me if you think I'm getting that wrong. There with the yeah, like I think it's f- true. I mean, yeah. I,
1: I I was you know, a critic of nuclear power and of obviously nuclear weapons, and I, and, uh, and and the uh, extent to which the old-fashioned systems could go critical in the old three-mile island event and so on, Mm -hmm. the China syndrome, if you remember that old movie with Jack Lemmon. Um, So all this sort of worries what people had, the system was inherently unstable, would break down, uh, and if you had a failure in the control system, then you'd have a critical event and you'd have enormous destruction. We had the, the three mile island as at the, the, the Fukushima, the plant in Japan, mm-hmm. Chernobyl, Chernobyl, et etc. And then plenty so of that,
0: apocalyptic movies coming from that, which just yeah, terrified yeah, everyone. Yeah.
1: Now if, if you look if you look at the modern technology, and I've only learned about this courtesy of the engineers who support me on Patreon, which is where i my I've got a bit of a plug for that my patreon.com slash prof Steve Keen. That's where you get most of my views. Uh, but they've got a lot of a lot of engineer supporters there. And they have informed me on the current state of nuclear technology. And what we now have are are water-moderated reactors uh, where the water itself, uh, incredibly pure water, of course, but the water is both to take the heat away from the core and to moderate the core. And moderation means slowing down how fast the neutrons travel. And if you don't slow them down, they won't hit another another, uh, uranium uh, or whatever thorium atoms so therefore they won't split and your chain reaction yeah. falls so in the modern reactors if there is a failure the moderator drains out of the way and the reaction stops so the the safety levels of even uranium-based even plutonium-based reactors is far higher now than it was 40 years ago and uh, if we are we're running out new power stations you could actually make them you wouldn't have to make them in the uh, you know Everything's got to be. This particular plant's got to be covered properly. You could be making them as, as I think a, I think a South Korean firm is starting to now make them in shipping, shipping, yeah, yards. shipping containers. This was making one of
0: um, Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now, which came out in twenty yeah, yeah. sixteen. Forty it's megawatt not, stations. Yeah. It's, it's not it, it, yeah, it's, it's 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 old news in a sense, and well, not, so,
1: not, we, don't, we don't actually we haven't gone from the prototype to the production model okay. yet, but the basic story: the power station could be much smaller. Uh, would not need all the approvals that are necessary because they would be inherently mm-hmm. safe. And a very dense, intense way of creating energy, far less worried about degradation and so on. And there are other things like mm-hmm. thorium-based reactor, which we still haven't. The very first reactor was thorium, and mm-hmm. that wasn't used because it couldn't be used nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're going to uranium instead, and there's far more thorium on the planet than there is uranium, et cetera, et cetera. Half-life is 300 years the worst output versus 10,000 years or more for for uranium-based stations, uh, so all these things—the so the reasons that the left and the green movement, in particular, are anti-nuclear—are no longer relevant to the current state of, mm-hmm. of, of, of what nuclear technology is. And yes, we should be doing it. Yeah,
0: and this so that's,
1: that's one reason. You now got green, but been partly because that's, that's where the left-right stuff comes in, and it's wrong on the left-hand side because a lot of the left uh, were anti-nuclear for you know peace, love, and friendship type reasons. Um, which is not not particularly a concern at the, left, the right. Um, and and therefore, like I think, the German Greens are very strongly anti-nuclear, and that's why they're shutting down the power nuclear power stations and starting coal. But in, in terms of relative danger, coal radiation radiation from coal kills far more people than radiation from nuclear
0: reactors today. Or just deaths from know? standard work workplace operations, you know, as well. I believe yeah. yeah. deaths from so they're they're heavily outweighs deaths from. Yeah. Um, Nuclear radiation. People don't so, understand yeah. what radiation is either, um, very well. I don't think. I think that's part yeah. of the problem. Is they fundamentally don't understand what radiation is. They don't know that the sun mm. is radiation. It's light coming from this from this um, lighting thing I've got here. Is is radiation? with uh, Radiation is everywhere, and it's in you. It's affecting you, and you don't. I mean, know yeah, there, are, there are gamma
1: rays and alpha rays, which are more more significant. But, yeah. but we we know that, like again. If we didn't have the uh, the, uh, the atmosphere and particularly the ozone layer, would be bombarded by those much more effectively by outer yes. space than by local, and we still get some effect on them. So there, there's all these ways in which the left got anti-nuclear for a good reason during the days of the nuclear, you know, the, the, the mutually assured destruction and worries about a you know, global, uh, global uh, nuclear arm armageddon. Uh, And we did have, you know, the initial nuclear technology did have the flaw that the control system broke down, the reaction continued, and you therefore had runaway meltdowns were feasible. That's no longer feasible with modern design. So all these things is like a dated, the original opposition of the left was to nuclear, not to coal. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: now what we're realising is that it's actually the fossil fuels which are more dangerous than the immediate term. We should be shifting over to using nuclear, and Germany's going in precisely the wrong direction on this front.
0: And Australia actually left wing possible. And it seems the world at large isn't particularly going in the right direction in it either. It's no, nuclear no, no. nuclear seems to oppose. Yeah. This is one of the points that <clears throat> Schellenberger mates <clears throat> makes in his book. Um is that sorry I've <clears throat> been a bit sick at the moment. Um, that nuclear No, not okay that I have. No, no, I've tested negative twice, but <clears throat> God, it's been around. Anyway. yeah. Um, that nuclear could very easily solve a lot of our problems and a lot of our energy problems, and yet it is just just—it's not being adopted and a large part of that is because of the left and the problems coming from the noise coming from the left <clears throat> Yeah. or at least people not supporting mm-hmm. it, which not doing classic left things, in my opinion, and not doing the things that would actually help their causes at the end of the day if they just got rid of a bit of the... The moral fantasizing, perhaps, and um, yeah, I think that's true. Ideology that comes with it. So, I suppose. So, you, yeah. To wrap that up, you. So your thoughts on what I what I said was that, which is that <clears throat> the environmental activism is not. Summarize those thoughts again, if you wouldn't mind, just just briefly. That they're, they're, they're not as helpful as they could be sometimes, and that's because of a non. <clears throat> systems-based thinking.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've, we've got to stop this being a left versus right. This is the right versus wrong, and the wrong are the people who are trivialising the dangers, and that includes, of course, economists, but also fossil fuel industries. Uh, but that means we have to look at you know, what is what can work, and and, the, and, and we certainly can't do it at all. The minerals simply aren't available to do it all with the renewable industry. So nuclear has to be part of the. Mix, so the left has to stop demonising nuclear power, and that's really that, that, that's where the left side ideology is getting in the way. Uh, but the right has to take the problem seriously, and this is the, the problem they're contributing. So we get a left-right divide out of it: um, one one side demonising one of the potential solutions, the other side trivialising the problem. So I think it's a real error that we've reduced this to something in politics where it is fundamentally a scientific uh, issue. Mm-hmm yeah
0: and the because the nature of the debate is charged, you get people it becomes emotional and people aren't people aren't measured and people aren't careful in tone and so communication is made in a manner that is reactive and makes the other side react rather than engage you in interested rational discussion and that seems to be fundamentally where topics of because we're talking about values here talking about identity we 're talking about beliefs um, what people think are important and when those get challenged or disregarded or whatever um, that 's when people that 's when the emotions come in and the, the rationality goes and we become less productive I think than we could be and I think that 's what characterizes the nature of these by and large a lot of the nature of these these climate debates um, um, and even debates about capitalism, markets, um, what have you. So, I think those are perhaps my closing thoughts on the, the matter. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share with us, Steve? I think
1: we'll leave it, leave it for another conversation,
0: Lucy. It's been good to talk to you. Very much so. It's been a um, it's been a great topic and one that I've wanted to engage you on for a while. Where can people find you um, if people?
1: Okay, two sites. There's uh, my Patreon site, patreon.com slash profstevekeen. And I've now set it up a sub stack as well. That's profstevekeen.substack.com. So those are the two main sites people can find my work at. Most of the stuff I post there is posted for, for open access. The podcasts are subscriber only. Uh, and <clears throat> there are some posts I'll put up which are just for subscribers. Um, so I, people can you know, sign up for free. I'd like them to sign up to support what I'm doing because. <clears throat> Um, that's my sole source of income these days. So mm-hmm. that enables me to do what I'm doing. So
0: patreon.com slash Prof Steve uh profstevekeen.substack.com. Awesome. Great. Well, I highly encourage anyone who's listening to to follow. And I'll also make sure to post those articles that we've been going over um in the bio, in the link of this this video of this podcast. I'll make I'll send you the latest one, the, the ones on the uh, on the shipping points as well if you haven't got those. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Steve, it's been a pleasure. Cheers. Mm